Mark chapter 5. Did I say Matthew? If I said Matthew, I meant Mark. I said Mark. Thank you. Mark. Mark, would you? Thank you, Mark. Mark. Most people have never heard of the, heard the name Mung No, nor heard the name Krishna Paul. But they're very important men. Mung No was the first convert to Christianity in Burma, or now Myanmar. In 1812, Adoniram Judson and his wife Nancy left the United States, became the first missionaries to Burma. Judson Judson started the church in the city that was known then as Rangoon, which is now Yangon. And he began to give the gospel to the Buddhists. He learned the language, he learned the culture, and he preached faithfully for seven years without a single convert. He purchased a piece of property on what was known as Pagoda Road and continued to preach Christ. And in June 1819, Mung No became the first Burmese national to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Seven years of faithful service before Adoniram Judson saw any fruit from that labor. Between 1832 and 1834, Adoniram Judson translated the entire Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew into the Burmese language. That translation is still being used today. When I was there last and teaching national pastors, they were using the Judson Bible. There's no telling how many Burmese people have come to Christ since Mong No came to faith. I personally know of hundreds that I have met there. I know there's thousands more. I've preached in a church in Yangon near the same place that Adonai M. Judson planted that church. You wouldn't know it today in Burma, in Myanmar. It's a very dark country still desperately needs the gospel. And we're so thankful for men like Jeremy Bustle and others who are training national pastors there to preach the gospel all over that country. I've had the privilege of teaching dozens of pastors expository preaching and parables and other things there in that country. Now, most of the world will never know the name Mung No, but he was the first of a great harvest in that country. The other name I mentioned, Krishna Paul, was a devout Hindu in India in the late 1700s. He'd heard the gospel from an English medical doctor named John Thomas. And on November 25th, 1800, Paul was in the river doing his daily Hindu ritual washings and he fell and dislocated his shoulder. His friends took him to Dr. Thomas who brought Paul to William Carey who had been a missionary in country for seven years without a convert. The two of them were able to put Paul's shoulder back in place, and William Carey gave him the gospel. A few weeks later, in December 1800, Krishna Paul became the first convert to Christianity in the country of India. Again, it's impossible to know from a human standpoint how many Indians have come to saving faith since then. Thousands perhaps hundreds of thousands or even more. The Lord knows. 
There's another man, a name that we don't know, a name that's been lost to history. The only place this man's name is recorded is in the Lamb's Book of Life. He was a very important man, and he was the very first convert in Decapolis. Only the Lord knows how many people came to Christ as a result of this man's ministry. The story is of the demon-possessed man in Decapolis appears in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it shows the purpose of, of Christ's coming was not just for Israel, but really for the world, for Gentiles as well. It shows the power of Jesus over the most severe de- demonic forces. It shows the plan of God for those who have been transformed by his grace. And it shows the compassion of Jesus for those who have been suffering under the bondage of Satan. And it shows that Jesus can transform maniacs into missionaries. Mark chapter 5, we'll read the first five verses and unpack those and then we'll keep moving through the story. We see first the condition of the man, the condition of the man. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. A little background to this story, Jesus had been in on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee preaching and healing and casting out demons in the area. And the religious leaders had gotten together and they began to accuse Jesus of being able to cast out demons because they said he was under the power of Satan. That he was a, a working for the devil, if you will. This is a level of blasphemy that had previously not been committed. And from that point on, and as an act of judgment, Jesus concealed his message to those particular people and would preach to them after that moment in parables. Told his disciples later that day it was time to leave. It was getting late and they wanted, he wanted to cross over to the other side, to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, to the area of, known as Decapolis. Exhausted, when they got in the boat after a day of ministry, Jesus fell asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. And the disciples began to sail across the sea. And and as as happens there on the Sea of Galilee, because of the high mountains around it, winds come down at a tremendous rate and they hit the surface of the Sea of Galilee and it caused these storms and huge waves. And that's what happened that night. And just Jesus is sleeping. The waves are crashing over the boat. They're filling the boat with water. The Disciples are panicked. They believe they're going to die. And here's Jesus still asleep. And they wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They think their ship's going to be destroyed. They're going to be in the water. They're going to drown. Jesus arises from his sleep, tells the winds and the waves to be quiet, to be silent. Literally, shushes the waves and the wind. They instantly stop and the sea lays calm and and Jesus turns to the disciples and chastises them for their little faith. Why why are you still without faith? They had seen Jesus calm, 
calmed storms before. They had seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles, and here they were afraid again. And Jesus and his disciples arrive on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They came to the sea in the county or the country of the Gerizines. And this is Gentile territory. It's a group of Jewish men now getting off a boat in Gentile territory in an area that has known by a few different names. We have in Mark, it says the Gerizines. It's also known as Gadara. It's an area in total is known as Decapolis, which means ten cities. You might think of Decapolis as the title of a, a county. So that King County is made up of multiple cities. Decapolis was made up of ten cities. The chief city there was Gadara or Gadarenes. There's one reason that Jesus came, and that was to meet a Gentile man who was possessed by multiple demons. That's the only reason he came. Verse 2, when he got out of the boat, immediately the man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. At the incarnation of Christ, there was a marked increase in the activity of Satan on the earth. Particularly in demon possession. To give you an idea, in the entire Old Testament, there is perhaps one account where demons were possessing men. And that's in Genesis 6 when the sons of God mated with the daughters of men. And even that's debated whether those are demons or not. Other than that, there's no record of anybody being demon possessed. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. There's just no record of it. And then from the book of, from, uh, after the book of Acts, there is no record of anybody in the New Testament being demon possessed. Doesn't mean it didn't exist. Just wasn't as prominent as it was during the ministry of Jesus. Satan has always been active in mankind from the time he deceived Eve until today. He still accuses the brethren before the throne of God, before the Lord day and night. He still walks around like a roaring lion, sinking someone to devour. He still disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive people. He still uses subtlety that works so well on Eve. And he still has a has developed a never-ending line of beliefs and systems to draw people away from the gospel. People seek to fill this spiritual void inside them with everything that is available other than the truth. And Satan doesn't care if you're involved in a cult. That doesn't bother him at all. It's being involved in Christianity that bothers him. So he uses everything from cults to horoscopes to atheism to apathy and everything in between. To get people to keep their eyes off of the Lord. There's no way to know in Mark chapter 5 or any of the the parallel passages in Matthew 8 or Luke 8. How this man became demon possessed. Whether he was dabbling in idol worship or some occultic practice and became out of worship or demon possessed. We don't know. But whatever the cause, he's about to have a life changing encounter with Jesus. Now, Matthew tells us there was two demon-possessed men. Luke and Mark choose to focus on the one. He is obviously the leader of the group, leader of the two. But I want you to listen how the Gospels describe the man's condition. First, he's violent. Matthew 8.28 says he was extremely violent that no one could pass by the way. There's a road going through where those tombs were, and 
he was so violent that no one would dare try to get by. He would attack them, apparently. And they were uh, uh, terrified. So afraid they would have to find some way around wherever they needed to go. Our text tells us in verse 3 that he had his dwelling among the tombs. Caves carved into the rock. Small caves. Caves that you have to crawl into. Not something you could just walk around and shine your flashlight around. You'd have to crawl into it. And they were just served the purpose of putting a dead body in and sealing it back up. And years later, if you needed to put another dead body, you opened it up and you'd gathered all the bones together at that point. You put them in a jar and you shoved the jar in the corner and you stuck the next body in. And this is where this man was living. A place where the stench of decaying corpses hung in the air. A place where there was unclean to any Jew, for sure. Verses 3 and 4 continue and says, And no one was able to bind him anymore, which means they had tried multiple times, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains were torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So apparently he had some kind of superhuman strength along the lines of Samson, and uh, what, however it worked out with multiple people jumping on him and trying to tie him up, it just didn't work. He would just snap the chains. He would break the shackles. He'd tear the ropes. Eventually, the people who lived nearby were so afraid, they just left him to run around in the tombs. No matter what they tried, didn't make any difference. The word subdue there means to tame. They're trying to tame him. as a, He's a wild animal. And that's the descriptions that are given to him. Verse 5 says, Constantly day and night he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. Like a, think of a coyote yowling at the moon. And except add to that an anguish that must have accompanied these cries of this man. Day and night. And then it says he was gashing himself with stones. Perhaps in uh, moments of sanity he was trying to do something that would release him from the torment of the demons or maybe it was just the demons that were trying to destroy him like another man who the demon threw him into the fire and threw him into the water trying to destroy the man. Whatever the case, you can picture this wretched individual with open wounds all over his body and dried blood and scabs and scars. The demon activity had taken everything from this man. According to Luke chapter 8, he used to live in a home, but the demons drove him into the desert. It had taken away his dignity. According to Luke 8, he was naked all the time. Said he had not put on clothing for a long time. Took away his sanity. Screaming out day and night. Acting like an animal. Cutting himself with sharp stones. It took away his humanity. He's described more as a beast than he is in a human being. It took away his hope. This man was completely demon controlled. But fortunately for him, Jesus transforms maniacs into missionaries. And that brings us to the compassion of the Lord. 
We'll start with verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. They were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in in the city and in the country, and all the people came to see what it was that had happened. This demon-possessed man sees Jesus before he even gets off the boat and runs to meet him as he gets off of the boat. Now, this isn't the man acting out his will. This is the demons acting according to what they must do. They have no choice here. The man wasn't thinking, here's my chance to be free. I've heard of this man, Jesus. It's not the man who recognizes Jesus. It's the demons who do. The forces of Satan are powerless before Christ. They have no choice. They always bow down to Christ. Mark chapter 3, verse 11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And that's what's happening here. Verse 7, shouting with a loud voice, What business do we have to do with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I implore you by God, do not torment me. The demons know what awaits them. They know their future is limited. They know the destruction that's coming. And they're they're begging Jesus at this point, don't send us to the abyss yet. Don't punish us quite yet. They have no choice but to fall down and worship Christ. But they're begging not to be tormented quite yet. Verse 8, for he had been saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And the demons will obey because they have to. They can't ignore the commands of God. There's a point there somewhere that we're not even demons and we can ignore the commands of God, but demons can't. Think about that for a moment. Verse 9 says, he was asking him, what is your name? This is the only record in the Gospels of Jesus ever asking the name of a demon. Now, I want you to understand, it's not because Jesus didn't know. The one who created all of the stars and calls them by name certainly knew the names of every demon. He's doing this not for his own edification or his own understanding. He's doing this for the benefit of all of those who are around. For the disciples and the herdsmen and the other people who are around that if Jesus just casts out the demon and they just leave, the only one who knows what happens is Jesus and the man. But Jesus wants everybody else to know that there are multiple demons in this man and, and there's still no power, there's no, no match for the power of Jesus. Verse 9 continues, and he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion had approximately 6,000 soldiers in it. and It's probably not the intent to say there were 6,000 demons. We don't want to draw too sharp of a distinction here. But there were many, perhaps as much as 2,000, because that's the number of pigs that were there in that herd. 
But despite the number, whether it's a hundred or six thousand, they're no match for Jesus. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. All the powers of hell can't prevail against Christ. Verse 10 says, and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This, there's a, apparently a spokesman for the demons, the one who's doing the communication with Jesus. And he's the one to ask him not to send them out of the country. Don't send us to a place where we can't torment people anymore. Now, why Jesus doesn't banish these demons to the abyss or why God allows them to torment the man in the first place is a topic for another time. But Jesus does free the man from the demons that are tormenting him. Verse 11 and following, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. And the demons implored him, send us into the swine that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. This is not, should not be considered an act of mercy on the demons. That Jesus doesn't destroy them or doesn't send them out to the abyss. This shouldn't be seen as a concession to the demons. Fine, demons, I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want just to concede this point with you. Rather, again, the, the permission is granted for them to leave the man and go into the demons for the benefit of all those who are around. Because again, if Jesus just says, all right, now I just want you guys out of there, the only ones that would know would be Jesus and the man. But because the people are hearing what's happening and they see the reaction, they hear the the conversation, you can go into the swine, and then they see the reaction of the swine running down the hill, everybody understands what has actually happened. Jesus has power. This is a vivid display of the power of Jesus that wouldn't otherwise exist. In verse 14, the herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country The people came out to see what was happening. It's not surprising that the herdsmen were a little freaked out and ran to town to tell their story. You won't believe what just happened. Not only that, the price of bacon went up in the town. (laughs) That brings us to the concern of the people. Verse 15. They came to Jesus... And observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened and to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. What are the people afraid of? They're afraid of the drastic change in the man. They're afraid of what they don't understand. Something they don't, they don't get. They were afraid of the man before. And they left him alone and they stayed away from the road and they couldn't bind him. They couldn't do anything. They tried to because they were afraid. And then they realized they can't do anything. The man who they feared who terrorized them day and night, now sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. Everything had changed and that Scares people. Prior to Jesus coming, they're afraid of the man. Now the man is in his right mind and they're afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of his power. 
Those, verse 16 again, those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. The leaders of the town see this formerly demon-possessed man. They hear the story, the encounter of Jesus. They can look and see down the hillside, the shoreline full of dead pigs. And their response is begging Jesus to leave. They implore him to leave their region. What they should have done is invite him into town. What they should have done is sat down with him and said, how did you do that? Tell us more. What they should have done is like the city of Sychar when Jesus met with the woman at the well. And she went into town and said, I just met a man who told me everything I've ever done. And they came out to meet him and invited Jesus to stay for four days, three or four days. But sin makes people content in their ignorance. They should have brought all the sick, all the demon-possessed people to Jesus to be healed. Instead, they're content in their unbelief. They don't want to be awakened out of their sinful slumber to their need for a Savior. They feared what they couldn't comprehend and they fear that which is greater than their understanding. That brings us to the to the, to the commission of the man. Verse 18. And he was getting into the boat. And the man that had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Jesus doesn't argue with the people. They ask him to leave. Jesus turns around and leaves. He doesn't pronounce a curse on this Gentile area because of their rejection of Christ. Like when the disciples and Jesus were passing through Samaria and the The disciples were looking for a place to stay and they stopped in the town and the Samaritans said, no, we don't want your kind here. John and Peter said, hey, or John and James, hey, can we call fire down from heaven and consume them? Jesus doesn't pronounce a curse on them like he did some of the cities up in the north just before his crucifixion that had rejected the truth. Turns around, he walks back to the boat. Well, the reason is because Jesus just came for that one man. He came to meet that one man to cast out the demons, to transform that maniac into a missionary, and then head back to Jewish territory. Naturally, the man wants to accompany Jesus. Jesus saved his life in every way possible. Before Christ came, the man was naked. After Christ came, he was clothed. Before Jesus came, he was a lunatic living among the dead, screaming out day and night, torturing himself. After Jesus came, he was sitting in his right mind, coherent and calm. Before Jesus came, he was a slave to Satan. After Jesus came, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him and wanted to follow him. Before Jesus came, he was a fierce creature. After Jesus came, he was a new creature. 
Jesus doesn't let the man join him in the boat. Rather, he commissions him. And he gives him a very important ministry. I want you to go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Two commands. The first is go. Go home. Go back to your townspeople. Go back to the people who sent Jesus away. See, Jesus is a Jewish man. They were in a Gentile area. Jesus would not have had the freedom to roam around in that Gentile area and give the gospel and be taken seriously by the Gentiles. So Jesus sends this Gentile man. You go back and you tell them. And that's the second command. You report. You tell them about all the great things the Lord has done for you. You tell them about the mercy He has shown to you. How He's freed you from bondage to Satan. And the man does just that. He begins to proclaim in all the ten cities, the Decapolis, what great things Jesus has done for him. And everyone was amazed. Well, naturally the people are amazed. It's an amazing story. You know, I was a youth pastor for a little over 10 years. And in that period of time, I ran multiple camps. And I had speakers from all different walks of life come in and do camps. And some of them, their testimony was, you know, from the gutter to the gospel type testimonies. And some of them were, I grew up in a Christian home and I love my siblings and I love the Lord and everything in between that. For years, I would meet, I'd have teenagers that would hear some of these fantastic testimonies and say, well, my testimony is nothing like that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a great testimony. Because a miracle has taken place in your life. And God has shown you mercy. And maybe you weren't a, a maniac cutting yourself and yelling out at the moon. And maybe you weren't a drug addict. Some of you were. And God saved you out of that. Maybe you didn't leave a debauched lifestyle. Some of you did and God saved you out of that. Whatever the case, it's a miracle. And God has sent us to do the same thing and just proclaim the mercy of God. And I can't tell you how many Christians say, I don't know how to share the gospel. If you're saved, you know how. You just tell them what happened. This former maniac wants to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, no, go enroll in seminary. And after you've got a master's degree, then you can go tell people. He just goes, go tell, go tell people what happened. Go tell them what I've done for you. And that's all we have to do. Though the people ask Jesus to leave In his mercy and wisdom, Jesus doesn't leave them without a witness. They're all going to hear about the greatness and the mercy of Jesus. And how he transforms maniacs into missionaries. And that's what happens to every one of us that are transformed by the grace of Christ. You realize we're no better off than he was before salvation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see something here. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to note the parallels. As we read the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to note the parallels 
between us and this maniac. Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before Christ, we walked among the dead. We were dead ourselves. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Look at that. We were servants of Satan. We walked around in ignorance and the, with the prince of peace and the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. Verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the, desire, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We just followed along and did what our flesh wanted to do. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He came to us in our sinful, wicked condition. And He transformed us. And He sat us with Him. Verse 7, So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus crossed that sea in order to show His kindness and mercy to that one man, He did that for you and me if you're saved. He crossed from heaven to earth. To meet us. To show us His grace and His mercy. So we didn't have to live as servants of Satan. The maniac became a missionary proclaiming the wonderful works of God. The wonderful works of Christ. And Jesus set him to a place that he himself could not go. God has saved us so that we might proclaim the wonderful works of Christ and go to places that Jesus didn't physically go. And you and I are missionaries. If you're saved, we're missionaries. We're missionaries to wherever God sends us. And it may be Covington or Kent or Auburn or Black Diamond, or Federal Way, or Maple Valley. It might even be Seattle. Places that need the gospel. And in God's mercy and grace, He doesn't leave them without a witness because He has us to do that. And we should be Acting out our role as missionaries where we are planted. And because we are such a blessed church, we need to be supporting missionaries around the world. We haven't talked about it for a while, and just so everybody's aware, the way we support missionaries here is through what we call faith promise missions. 
And that is for you to give above and beyond your normal giving by faith, whatever the Lord would lay on your heart, to missions. And everything you give to missions goes to missions. You designate that on your offering envelope or how you give online, you can do it that way too. And we need to be all be involved in that. We need to be involved in sharing the gospel with those around us, our neighbors, our family, our co-workers. And we need to be involved in giving the gospel around the world. We've just seen two of our missionaries earlier before the message started. We'll see a couple more next week and Lord willing in the next few weeks. We'll see more. But these men and women are out there serving the Lord in places that you and I can't go. And we're so thankful that God has called these people to places like Myanmar, to places like the Philippines, like India, like Honduras, like Italy. We have a great responsibility and ability to help them do their ministry and have a part of that and see what great harvest God brings about because of their efforts. No way of knowing how many people came to Christ after Mong No or after Krishna Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no way to know in the world how many people come to Christ after somebody you share the gospel with. How God might use you or use them. God transforms people. If he can make a maniac a missionary, imagine what he can do with you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy on us. So thankful, Father, that though we may not have wandered around in the tombs yelling and screaming and cutting ourselves with stones, Father, you transformed us just the same. We were in the same wretched condition. But because your grace and your mercy, we can know saving faith. Father, our prayers for everyone we know to come to saving faith. And Lord, perhaps there's some here today that don't know you. Maybe they're they're teenagers and they realize in this last week of camp that they they're not saved, that they need Jesus Christ. Father, maybe they're older and they realize they've lived a lifetime without knowing you. But you're opening up their eyes to the truth. I pray that your spirit draws these folks to saving faith. Father, I pray that you would use us, that we would surrender ourselves completely to be used by you to give the gospel to a lost and dying world. Thank you, Father, that you sent somebody to us. Be it a parent, be it a friend, be it a pastor, be it a missionary. Father, somebody shared the gospel with us and we are so grateful. May you use us to not only share the gospel with those around us, but Father, to support those who are going out to spread the gospel. May you delight in raising more funds that we can send out even more missionaries. And Father, you might be glorified in that. We do pray for our missionaries, specifically Today, we pray for the bustles and your protection upon them in Myanmar. Father, that you would provide for them financially, physically, spiritually. Father, we pray for your protection 
upon them and they live in a place that's been a war zone in the last several months. Father, may you give them great peace, comfort, protection, and opportunities to share the gospel. Father, for the nationals that we know there, for Daniel and uh, for others, Lord, pray for your grace upon them, for healing. Father, we pray for our missionaries in the Philippines, for the Urs, that you would protect them. Lord, that you would keep them healthy, that you would keep them strong, that you would give them opportunities for ministry. And Father, you'd keep their relationships healthy. Father, you'd provide all that is needed for the gospel to go forth. Lord, for all of our missionaries, we pray that you would grant them favor, success in their ministry. May many people come to saving faith as a result of the labor of these men and women. And Father, you might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.